this was kind of making me feel better. And then by Wednesday, a lot of people were really saying that it was only a matter of time before Biden was declared the winner. Thursday was the point at which it got kind of more apparent to me, you know, where I it kind of I felt pretty confident, pretty sure on Thursday, really by Thursday morning, that Trump was going to lose this. Um, and so I it, it was funny because I actually Thursday night, I was afraid they were going to call the election in the middle of the night. So I actually stayed up all night watching TV uh, with my dog. And a part of the reason that this was so important to me to, to not kind of miss the big moment when they called it. So 2012 was the first presidential election that I got to vote in. And 2012, in, in 2012, I voted for Obama and I was in sort of the, uh, the coffee house on campus. I was, I was an undergrad and I went back to my dorm just to like grab a cookie or something. I, I figure I'll take my cookie, go back to the coffee house, eat it, keep watching the election returns. And when I was going to my dorm, I heard some people sort of cheering and some people groaning. Um, I, I did start whooping a little bit when I figured out what was going on. But essentially, that the news media had called it for Obama when I was between my dorm and the coffee house. Because, I mean, that was really, that was an election where they called, they called that really early. Uh, because Romney got his ass handed to him by Obama. Um, but, and, and honestly... Um, I would love to see Romney just have to go on a time loop for the next hundred years of basically just having to relive that day over and over and over again, because Romney really is kind of the poster child for a shady person that nobody thinks is shady, but, or a bigoted person that everyone just forgot was a bigot. But as the case may be, I really didn't want to sort of miss that big moment when they called the election. So I stayed up all night Thursday night, uh, and Apparently, I did not know this because I had never watched TV this late before, but apparently around 4 a.m. they run ads on television for a Bible, an audio recording of the Bible, read by James Earl Jones. And now James Earl Jones has a really, really distinctive voice. Uh, and actually, one of the things that's cool about James Earl Jones, and I think why he, he's been able to kind of continue raking in more and more money and entertaining us more and more, is that his voice hasn't changed significantly as he's gotten older. He's almost 90 years old, but he really doesn't sound that different from how he sounded in Star Wars films 40 years ago. And, and so you, I hear this voice, and I think it's Mufasa in my living room. That's how tired I am. I'm like, what is Mufasa doing in my living room? You know, I'm half expecting him to be like, Simba. But in any case... Uh, that apparently there's a target demo that they think is going to be watching TV at 4 a.m. that is going to want a copy of the Bible read by James Earl Jones. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because, like, when you watch, if you happen to ever be home in the daytime watching TV, which I, I pretty rarely watch TV in the daytime. I don't even watch live TV much at all anyway. But um, if you're ever watching TV in the daytime, you notice a lot of ads for things like personal injury lawyers. And that makes sense because the idea is that somebody who's watching TV during the daytime on a weekday is likely to be maybe laid up at home from a car accident and, and may need a personal injury attorney. I don't know what the reasoning is that people who are watching television at 4 a.m. Are, are going to be particularly interested in a Bible read by James Earl Jones. Maybe the mindset is that if you are up at 4 a.m. watching TV regularly that you need God. I don't know. But in any case... That was kind of my funny moment for the night. And they did not call the election result that night, but they did call 
that Biden had overtaken Trump in Georgia. And so that was a really cool moment to be able to sort of uh, to, to be able to sort of watch that. And it was also funny. I don't know if anybody sort of know if anybody paid too much attention to what was going on with uh, Rick Santorum. So Rick Santorum, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, news commentator. But before he was a news commentator talking politics, he was also a, a very conservative Pennsylvania senator and presidential candidate. And among some of his more conservative positions, uh, he said that the founding fathers were uh, correct to not let a lot of people vote initially. Uh, he said that homosexuality should be illegal. In 2003, when the Supreme Court struck down laws against homosexuality in many primarily conservative states, Rick Santorum warned that this decision could lead to bestiality and pedophilia getting legalized. Because for someone of Santorum's sensibilities, the issue of consent, which is of course possible with homosexuality, but not possible with pedophilia, and especially not possible with bestiality, did not enter into the equation because Rick Santorum is a low quality human. Uh, he also argued that birth control should be illegal, which, uh, or at least that the Supreme Court was wrong to legalize it in 1965. Although if you look at some of the wording that Santorum used, it does seem to be at least likely that he does actually think laws against it should be brought back, not just that the Supreme Court overstepped by striking them down. In any case, a, a pretty obnoxious opinion. Um, but it's also funny because it seems to me that this would require Santorum to be uh, very supportive of heavy welfare payments with no family caps. Because if it becomes illegal again for a couple to use birth control, and that couple ends up with 10 kids that they can't afford, it seems to me that if you think birth control should be illegal, then you better be okay to pony up and pay the tax money to support all that family's kids. Uh, but in any case, Rick Santorum is um, being interviewed sort of throughout the election, not just night, but uh, election week on CNN, where he works as a commentator. It's not entirely clear why they couldn't just bring, I mean, they have Charlie Dent, the former, uh, or one of the former Republican congressmen from Pennsylvania. They have him come in on the network and do commentary. It's not entirely clear to me, I mean, they, you'd think they could at least offer him Santorum's spot, so that you have sort of a middle-of-the-road, conservative-leaning guy sort of uh, representing the Republican Party position instead of a guy that is basically just a full-on theocrat. Uh, but in any case, uh, Santorum was trying to sort of be all smiles throughout this process, but they were rubbing salt in his wounds in a very subtle way. So, first of all, the election of Joe Biden, even setting aside the fact that Santorum has been in the tank for Trump for a long time, has got to be sort of, has got to kind of pack a special sting for Rick Santorum, because many years ago, Pennsylvania had two Republican senators, Rick Santorum and Arlen Specter. Biden grew up largely in Pennsylvania. He was born there. He uh, lived there until he was middle school age. And so Biden got a reputation as sort of, he was called Pennsylvania's third senator in the sense that Pennsylvania Democrats would sometimes go to him when they wanted something done. So it's got to suck a little bit given that for Santorum to see Biden 
sort of rocketed to the presidency after everyone thought his time in public office was over, while Santorum's last two presidential campaigns crashed and burned, and Santorum is now doing commentary instead of running for president again. Uh, but they also rubbed salt in the wound by at one point interviewing Bob Casey. Bob Casey is the current Democratic senator from Pennsylvania. He became a Democratic senator from Pennsylvania by defeating, wait for it, Rick Santorum. So, honestly, I don't see much benefit to having him on that network, but if they're going to have him on that network, then bringing on Bob Casey to sort of rub salt in his wounds is pretty glorious. And I have to think the people that run CNN, or at least the people that booked uh, Charlie Dent for, uh, sorry, not Charlie Dent, Bob Casey for that segment, had to know what they were doing. So, in, in any case, so I'm happy to say that I was in the room watching the television when they called it for Biden on Saturday. And it was, of course, you know, just to sort of rub a little more salt in Santorum's wounds, it was Biden's native state and the state that Santorum represented, Pennsylvania, that sort of decided it for Biden. Not in the sense that it was a super close election and Pennsylvania was the one state that allowed Biden to win, but in the sense that when the news networks called Pennsylvania, that was what allowed them to declare Biden to be the winner. Um, and so I want to now sort of transition to why precisely Trump lost and sort of what are some of the kind of takeaways of how each candidate did in this election. So one of the things that I sort of want to sort of bring up here, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, I am not convinced that Trump would have definitely won had it not been for the pandemic. I'm not even convinced that the riots were necessary to allow Biden to beat him, because one of the things that has never really been settled and probably never will be settled is in 2016, did Trump beat Clinton because there was no Democrat that could have beaten him at that point? Or did Trump beat Clinton because Democrats nominated the one candidate that Trump could beat? And we'll never really know that for sure. Uh, a lot of times what somebody thinks of Hillary Clinton sort of dovetails closely with what they think the answer to that question is, and it can sort of uh, create a bias. But Biden had significantly higher likability ratings than Hillary Clinton. Now, you may think that that's unfair. I I'm not saying that it is or isn't fair. I personally consider Biden to be more genuine on certain issues than Clinton. I, I think that his uh, coming out in support for gay marriage came off as significantly bolder and less of a political calculation than Hillary Clinton's support did the following year. Although I think that Hillary was reflecting her actual views, I just think that um, Biden was sort of the more bold candidate about it. So we really, but, but all this to say, Biden polls significantly better with voters than Clinton does in terms of likability. He polls significantly better with voters than Trump does in terms of likability. And if the theory that some people have is correct, that Trump only won because he was running against a very unpopular candidate, then it would stand to reason that someone like Biden could probably beat him. Now, I don't know if that's true. I'm conflicted, but I certainly think it's not at all clear. You know, it may be a comforting narrative for Republicans to tell, but it's not at all clear to me that Trump wasn't on track to lose this election even before the pandemic hit. You know, again, we'll probably never know for sure, but I think that that's possible. Um, I would say that the riots certainly damaged Trump's chances. Now, I talked about this earlier, but one thing that I want to sort of look at now is how Trump did in some of the counties that were hit by riots. So 
Hennepin County, Minnesota, uh, which is the county that Minneapolis is a part of, was arguably hit by the riots. I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but it was arguably hit by the riots worse than any other county or any other city in the United States. Now, Mi- Minneapolis is a very, very blue city, and Hennepin County is a very, very blue county. But if you look at the performance of how Trump did there in 2020 versus how he did in 2016, Trump did even worse uh, by a significant margin in 2020 in Hennepin County than he did in 2016. And I actually looked back at all of the presidential elections that I could find data for, which would go, which went at the county level, which went back to the late 1800s. And for all the elections I could find the data for, Biden did better in Hennepin County, Minnesota, than any other Democratic Party presidential nominee has ever done in that county, including Barack Obama. You see the same thing in uh, Ramsey County which is the uh, neighboring county for which St. Paul, the uh, other one of the Twin Cities, is a part of, and which was also hit hard by the riots after the murder of George Floyd. So in both those counties, you see that Joe Biden has outperformed every other Democratic Party presidential candidate in history for which I have been able to access data. And probably, given the fact that the county was historically uh, more Republican than it is now because of how the parties have have shifted, it's highly unlikely if you go back to the Civil War era that you're going to find a Democrat that did anywhere near as well as Biden did in those counties in that era. And actually, it's interesting to note that even though Barack Obama did better in the state of Minnesota as a whole, Joe Biden still outperformed him in those counties, and those were the counties that were hit the worst by the riots in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Uh, and I would, and possibly though, you, you could argue that at least Hennepin County was hit harder than any other county nationwide by the riots. And it's funny, with, and so it's funny, you know, Donald Trump was kind of trash talking when he went on the campaign trail in Minnesota because Minnesota was seen as this sort of uh, great white whale for Republicans that this was going to be the year that finally. Trump would become the first Republican presidential candidate since Richard Nixon in 72 to take the state of Minnesota. And Trump, trash talker that he is, was at a rally in Minnesota. And he said, you know, my advisors told me that if I had come here one more time to campaign back in 2016, that I would have won the state. It seems like Trump coming there to campaign more caused more people to vote against him, even people that might have been open to voting for him before. I think that there were also people that were open to voting for Trump previously that blamed him for the riots because of the ways in which Trump has exacerbated racial tensions and made it harder to reform uh, police practices. And and to give you sort of an idea, just to, to take a moment, I want to give you an idea of sort of what are some things that Trump has done to uh, make things worse in that area. So one great example, or I should say bad example, is the fact that the Obama administration in Obama's second term, particularly in the last two years of his term, of his second term, made some modest but still significant reforms on policing and criminal justice. So for example, uh, Barack Obama sort of scaled back the war on pot and tried to move away from locking up people for marijuana offenses, at least to the extent that had that they had been locked up. His administration also tried to sort of uh, taper off of a federal asset forfeiture program in which people could have their property confiscated 
and used uh, to sort of enrich police departments, even if they had not been convicted of a crime. So those are those are areas where Obama was trying to sort of scale back some of the most authoritarian aspects of sort of federal criminal justice policy. Another thing that Obama got started when he was president was a consent decree program in which police departments with long histories of bad behavior on an institutional level would be subjected to federal oversight as a means of reform. Trump's DOJ gutted this program. They also gutted a voluntary cooperation program between police departments that wanted to do better and the feds. Uh, to talk about sort of how Trump has responded to peaceful protests. Uh, Trump, when Colin Kaepernick and certain other NFL athletes started taking a knee to protest police brutality, Trump went on basically a year-long tear trying to get them fired. And so, it, whereas someone like Obama or Biden could go on TV and convincingly say during a riot that they supported peaceful protests, that they sympathized with what protesters were trying to do, but that they couldn't condone riots and that riots had to be stopped. With Trump, it rang hollow because he went on a massive tear trying to essentially destroy people's careers for peacefully protesting in a way he didn't like. Uh, and then we're not even getting into what he wanted to do to people who burned the American flag. So Trump, I think, got a lot of well-deserved blame from some swing voters for the way in which he had inflamed racial tensions and made police brutality more likely to occur. So to look at some other counties, because the, the twin city counties, so to speak, are really not a fluke. If you transition over to Multnomah County, Oregon, where uh, which is where Portland is located, and of course we all know what was going on in Portland. As I said, Portland, if we apply uh, Trump's racial logic from his tweet blaming Obama for the Baltimore riots, Portland is one of the uh, cities that you could still blame Trump for uh, because I think a lot of the rioters were white uh, because most Portlanders are white. A uh, fun fact, actually, uh, Portland, Oregon is actually the wider of the two Portlands. Portland, Maine actually has more black people uh, in it. So Multnomah County gave Biden the best performance that any Democratic Party presidential candidate that I've been able to find data for has ever had in that county. Uh, let's transition down south to uh, Fulton County and DeKalb County. So Fulton County and DeKalb County are where Atlanta is located, because Atlanta actually sort of straddles two counties. It's mostly in Fulton, but part of it is in DeKalb. So, of course, in Atlanta, that was the location where Rashard Brooks was unnecessarily killed by cops. And you can find cases of Democratic Party presidential candidates doing better than Biden did in those counties. But you have to actually go back to the days before the party switched on race, when it was primarily white people who were able to vote in these elections and when the Democratic Party was sort of the white supremacist party. So in the post-civil rights era, no Democratic Party presidential candidate has done as well as Biden has in Fulton and in DeKalb County. So those are all sort of examples of counties where, if anything, I would argue that the riots hurt Trump rather than helped him. So I want to say something else regarding Minnesota. There has been talk for uh, in this election that Minnesota is trending red and that it's only a matter of time before it becomes competitive for Republicans again. I saw people continuing to say this, actually, after Biden kind of mopped the floor with Trump there. And I think there's some things that have to be sort of put in context. If you look at how Biden did in Minnesota, 
it's better than John Kerry did in 2004 against George W. Bush. What you saw during the Obama era is that Obama did exceptionally well in Minnesota. Same thing with Maine. And so really, people can say that overall Minnesota is getting redder. But what I think we're really seeing is that it's just kind of going back to where it was pre-Obama era. And, and again, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Biden did way better than Clinton did in Minnesota. They both won the state, but Biden won it by a much larger margin. Again, same thing with Maine. Uh, so I really, I mean, it's theoretically possible that Minnesota will eventually one day become a uh, battleground state or a red state. But there's no reason to foresee that happening unless the parties massively shift, because Minnesota at this point is a reliably blue state and it's gotten bluer since the last election. Uh, and I, as regards Minnesota, I want to also sort of say here that there was this white supremacist jerk who basically is some rando who tweeted and said that he thought that Minnesota might go Republican because, and I, I hate to even quote this, but he basically said, because a lot of the residents are sick of their state looking like Mogadishu. Now, obviously, however racist that quote is, the presidential election results did not bear it out. And actually, I would say that the presidential election results in Minnesota suggest that more people in Minnesota were worried about their state ending up looking like the Confederacy, and that that is why they voted pretty resoundingly for Joe Biden. So let's talk about some of the predictions that uh, Republicans made about how this election was going to turn out, just besides the idea that Trump was going to win. Uh, let's talk about some of the very specific predictions and how they held up. So there was it was claimed that Trump was going to do way better with black voters than he did last time. Some people were even saying that he was going to get 30% of the black vote. I'm sorry, just uh, hold, hold on a moment. He's going to get 30% of the black vote. Okay, okay, I'm... I'm I'm back to normal now. According to exit polls, Trump picked up about 12% of the black vote. And it really says something about just how badly Republican presidential candidates do with black voters that 12% was treated as this big shift about black voters trending Republican. It is one percentage point more than what George Bush got in 2004. Nobody says that George W. Bush was super popular with African Americans. And if you want to look back, this is what Republicans have been doing in the last several elections every time. They're saying that this is going to be the time when black voters finally start voting Republican. So in 2004, when Bush got a whopping 11%, a whole 11% double digits of the black vote, people were saying that this was the start of a shift where more and more black voters were going to vote Republican. Then, of course, Barack Obama got nominated and won over 90% of the black vote both times. So then you fast forward to 2016, and Trump is saying that he could get 25% of the black vote. He gets less than half of that. And then, of course, this time, they're saying he's going to get a much larger share, possibly 30%, and he gets 12%, which is, again, very similar to sort of pre-Obama levels. And, and, and you can kind of go back, I mean, really, no Republican presidential candidate has gotten even cl even close to 20% of the black vote since Richard Nixon in 1960. When Richard Nixon ran again in 1968, he got way, way less of the black vote than he did even in 1960. Uh, and part of that was because the Republican Party had moved significantly to the right on race. Part of it was, frankly, 
uh, with apologies to JFK, he was running against a significantly woke or Democratic candidate in 1968 with Hubert Humphrey than he was in 1960 with JFK. Now let's turn to the Hispanic vote. Biden outperformed Trump among Hispanic voters by more than two to one. It is true that Trump did a little bit better with Hispanic voters uh, this time than he did last time, but he did significantly worse with them than even someone like George W. Bush did in 2004. So overall, the Hispanic vote has gone significantly more Democratic, and Trump didn't make much of a dent in that this time. Now, now of course, it's a little bit complicated when we talk about the Hispanic vote because it includes people from actually a bunch of different ethnic backgrounds, uh, from Cuban to Puerto Rican to Mexican, and Mexican-Americans on average, even within the same states, it seems, tend to vote significantly more Democratic than, for example, Cuban-Americans do. Um, but as a group, Hispanic voters picked Biden by over two to one. And again, these are things that are probably going to continue happening as long as the GOP is the white backlash party. And I want to kind of make a point here. I know that it has become fashionable, maybe even since the 1960s, to talk about the failed 1964 uh, Republican Party presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, as this just poor, sweet, innocent libertarian who got sort of caught up in a bad situation with white supremacists because he just couldn't bring himself to support the Civil Rights Act because his limited government principles were just so strong. Now, leaving aside the fact that Barry Goldwater was uh, not that, but was definitely not a hardcore libertarian in the 1960s, and that he had, just a few years before his presidential run, opposed Brown versus Board of Education, which dealt with government discrimination. Leaving all of that aside, this idea that Barry Goldwater did not understand, somehow, that he was stoking white backlash to try to get votes in 1964 is cockamamie. And one of the reasons we know this is that Barry Goldwater, a few years before he ran, gave a speech to a group of Republicans in Georgia. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially said, Republicans are not going to get the black vote as a block in 1960 or in 1964, so we might as well, quote, go hunting where the ducks are. Perhaps more precisely where the racist ducks are. But what Goldwater didn't understand, so Goldwater was coming off of the 1956 election, where Dwight Eisenhower had gotten maybe 40% of the, of the black vote. And what Goldwater didn't understand is that even if you don't get the majority of the black vote, there is a huge difference between getting 30, 35, 40% of the black vote and getting under 15%, as Republicans like John McCain, Mitt Romney, and now Donald Trump can tell you. And that's, that's what it boils down to, is that even if Republicans can't get the majority of the black vote again, they could really benefit from getting 25, 30, 35% of the black vote. And that's not going to happen if they keep being the white backlash party. You know, it was believed, particularly during the Bush era, during the uh, Romney era, that it was somehow believed that black voters were about to desert the Democratic Party in droves over the issue of same-sex marriage. You can go back. Uh, kids, I am dead serious. In 2012, there were columns written about whether or not Barack Obama was going to lose massive amounts of black votes for supporting same-sex marriage. Uh, but, what, but what it boils down to is that any, any kind of uh, political benefit that Republicans may have derived among black, amongst black voters from opposing gay marriage, that political benefit is just about done. Because... Like every demographic, 
younger black people are more supportive of same-sex marriage on average than older black people on average are. So as the uh, share of the black population that is millennials and people younger than millennials gets larger and larger, black voters, are, like voters of all races of younger generations, are going to get more and more turned off by Republicans' homophobia and transphobia. So you are not going to rebuild your support among black voters by trying to be the family values party. You are going to rebuild your support among black voters by no longer being the white backlash party. That's a pretty basic prerequisite. So I now want to turn my attention to the two states I got wrong, Georgia and Arizona. So I have to say, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but my presidential election map was not perfectly accurate, but it was significantly more accurate than the economist map. And I got some states right, uh, such as Florida, North Carolina. Well, I think it was just Florida, North Carolina, but I got states right that 538 did get incorrect and that the economists did get incorrect. Uh, and so I, but I want to sort of talk about the states that I didn't get right. I really thought that the only former Confederate state that Biden was going to win was Virginia, which has basically become a blue state at this point. I did not believe that he was going to win Georgia because it seemed to me that Georgia was kind of the pipe dream for Democrats to win, where they kept saying, you know, they said in 2016 they were going to win it. They said in 2018 they were going to win it. And they didn't either time. Now, in 2018, Brian Kemp very much had his finger on the scale. You know, in fairness to him, I think about how, how many debate competitions I would have run if I got to score my own rounds. But in any case, I thought that Democrats were going to just keep losing the state. Uh, because I honestly felt that Kemp cheated in 2018, but I also felt he would have likely won by a razor-thin margin had he not cheated. I'm having to kind of rethink that now. But what I, I really thought that Trump was going to pull off another win in Georgia. In hindsight, though, the writing may have been on the wall, partly because of how close Abrams got to beating Kemp in 2018 and, and the fact that Kemp did cheat to win. And all, but what I think also has to be understood, because there is a tendency, if you try to make any kind of comments about, well, the average white person on the street or the average white politician in X state is more bigoted racially than the average uh, white person on the street or white politician in another state, some people really push back and say that you're unfairly stereotyping or that you're letting other parts of the country off the hook, even though you're not saying that racism isn't a problem in those other parts of the country. But we see that sort of with Georgia, where if you try to say that Georgia has an exceptionally high level of racial bigotry, you'll really get a lot of pushback on that. But one thing that has to be understood is that there was a significant contingent of white Georgians who fought the good fight, voted for Biden. Many of these people are supportive of causes like Black Lives Matter and LGBT rights. The other reality is that even though Biden won Georgia, his percentage of the white vote in Georgia was pretty low. Uh, he only got about 30% of the white vote, which is significantly below the national average. It's also significantly below the percentage of the white vote that Biden got in Ohio and Iowa, both of which Trump managed to win. The reason, though, that Trump won those states and lost Georgia is that Georgia has the much larger black population. And black voters in Georgia, as they did in the rest of the country, voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. Uh, and you see that, by the way, you see something similar with, at least according to the civics polls that they do week to week, you see something similar with support for Black Lives Matter, where, for example, in Iowa, 
the aggregate support level for Black Lives Matter is significantly lower than the aggregate support level in Georgia, but the aggregate white level of support when they break it down by race is much higher in Iowa than it is in Georgia by about 15% last time I checked, or 15 percentage points. But su uh, support overall in Iowa amongst the, the entire population is lower for Black Lives Matter than it is in Georgia because Iowa is a much wider state. So, I, and I do think, honestly, that the fact that Trump won the state, won white voters in the state, 70 to 30, does kind of back up my point about what I was saying about racial attitudes in Georgia. But at the same time, the state, including white voters, are getting more and more democratic. Uh, and, and I think it's very possible that Georgia is going to be a purple state for the foreseeable future due to its demographics. I also think that what we saw was that there were some Republicans in Georgia who crossed party lines and voted for Biden, even if they also voted for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. And that's really to kind of talk about, you know, could Bernie, has, could Bernie Sanders have won? I believe that Bernie Sanders had a shot at winning. I think he could have actually quite possibly gotten the 279 electoral votes that I originally predicted that Biden would win. And I don't think that he would have won Georgia. And that's one of the reasons I think 279 is a pretty plausible number. It's possible he would have lost, but I think it's a plausible number. And part of the reason for that is I just really can't see a scenario where Georgia votes for Bernie Sanders. Now, this is not because of this idea that black voters don't like Bernie Sanders. Because if you look, first of all, if you look at how Bernie Sanders polls with black voters, he never got the majority of, of black voters in his primary runs. But if you look at sort of, if you ask for just sort of a thumbs up, thumbs down, do you like Bernie? then Bernie tends to poll pretty well with black voters. Like the, the polling data suggests that even, that a lot of black voters who didn't vote for Bernie have nothing really against him. Or they might think that, you know, some of his policies are a bit off, but they don't think that he's a bad guy. That, that, that's what the majority of polling data that I've seen shows. And so I think when push comes to shove, if Bernie Sanders had been the Democratic Party nominee, he would have he would have gotten the majority of black Georgians to vote for him. I think the bigger issue is going to be the predominantly white Republicans who cross party lines to vote for Biden. I just don't see a lot of those individuals crossing party lines and voting for Bernie. I think that would have been a bridge too far. I think a lot of those individuals would have voted third party. And that brings me to Arizona, which is the other state that Biden won that I'm pretty sure Bernie would have lost. The thing about Arizona that's important to understand, so I honestly felt that Trump did pretty well there last time. It hasn't gone uh, Democratic since the Clinton era. I thought that it was best to sort of err on the side of caution and say that uh, Biden was likely to lose the state. In hindsight, though, the writing was probably on the wall because while John McCain and Donald Trump did not have a friendly relationship by any stretch of the imagination in 2016, their relationship had been uh, deteriorating significantly in the two years that led up to John McCain's death. And once John McCain died, he took on sort of an almost mythic status. I don't mean to disrespect John McCain, but like, for example, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, Pete Buttigieg did an interview where he said it's time for Republicans to ask themselves, do they want to be a John McCain Republican or a Donald Trump Republican? And I heard that and I thought back to when John McCain was one of the leading supporters of keeping the Don't Ask, Don't Tell military ban on gay people in place. And I thought back to John McCain supporting that and I'm like... I almost had to tweet out and be like, does Pete Buttigieg regret his military service? Because if John McCain had had his way, openly gay people would still not be in the military. So, but but in any case, 
John McCain had taken on sort of an almost mythic status since his death. I think dying before the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation probably helped with that. Um, and John McCain had some good points. You know, he was not as bad as Trump. He was not as bad as George W. Bush. You know, he's not, not as bad as Romney. But John McCain was so beloved in Arizona that I think that Donald Trump just constantly crapping on him and using him as a punching bag really hurt Donald Trump's chances of winning Arizona the way that he did in 2016. I think also that the, uh, the McCains had a significantly closer relationship with uh, Joe Biden than they did with Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden and John McCain were, were pretty close friends. And Meghan McCain has talked about Biden being there for the family after John McCain died in 2018. So, and if you compare that for a moment with the Clinton family, John McCain was at an event many years ago where he made a joke, and I'm not going to repeat it, but he made a joke about how ugly he thought Chelsea Clinton was because he thought it was private. He, the joke came out, he had to apologize, but I can't imagine that the McCains and the Clintons were ever friendly after that because in some sense, th there's an argument to be made that what somebody says about you in private is probably more genuine than what they say about you in public. But in any case, the Clintons did not have that kind of close friendship with the McCains that the Bidens have. Now, if you think that Cindy McCain and Meghan McCain would have gone out and endorsed or campaigned for Bernie Sanders if he had been the nominee, then I have some oceanfront property to sell you right in the middle of Idaho. There's no way that would have happened. They would have been no more likely to support Bernie than they were to support Clinton, which of course they did not do. That being said, there is an argument to be made here that the McCains were not the only reason that Trump lost the state of Arizona. Because in 2018, Kirsten Sinema pulled off a big upset against Republican candidate Martha McSally to become the first Democratic senator in many years to represent Arizona. Now, this again, this was not an election where Trump was on the ballot. So it was an indication that Arizona was becoming more and more purple. I still felt that erring on the side of caution and predicting Trump would win the state again was sort of the most optimal approach. But what you also see in 2020 is that Democratic Senate candidate Mark Kelly, who ran against Martha McSally in 2020 because McSally was appointed to sort of the spare Senate seat, Mark Kelly did better than Joe Biden did in the state of Arizona. So there was a statistically significant chunk of Arizona voters who voted for Trump, but voted for Mark Kelly. So that that is sort of the that sort of offers the sliver of a possibility that Bernie would have been able to pull off a Hail Mary and win Arizona. But the reason that I'm still skeptical, that very skeptical that he would have won Arizona, is that both Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema are pretty moderate uh, Democrats. Whereas with states like Colorado, you see uh, Democrats like Jared Polis getting elected governor, who are pretty liberal. Uh, you see some at least sort of more liberal Democrats being elected in uh, certain other Western states. You really see so far that Arizona has really only elected very moderate Democratic senators. And so I was honestly skeptical that, uh, th that they would have voted for Bernie. But really, remember, Bernie did not need Arizona and Georgia to win the presidential election. He could have done it by winning the Rust Belt. And if you look at, for example, Michigan and Wisconsin, which were two previously blue wall states that Trump flipped in 2016, Bernie won the primaries there in 2016, so I think it's plausible that he could have taken most of the Rust Belt sans Ohio this time. And I always thought, you know, Biden's path to victory was the Rust Belt. That was the path to victory for really any Democratic candidate in this presidential election. If, you, if a Democratic Party candidate 
was able to flip back Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, then they didn't need to flip any other states to win. And I really felt and still feel that those states were vital to win because there was no scenario in which a Democratic Party presidential candidate was going to lose the Rust Belt, where the states lean more blue, and somehow managed to still win Arizona and Georgia, which lean more red than those Rust Belt states do. Because you have to kind of look at it holistically. If the mood of the country is pro-Republican enough that a Republican presidential candidate is going to win Michigan, then you can be pretty damn sure that that Republican presidential candidate is going to also win Georgia and Arizona, which are purple states now, but still Republican-leaning. But speaking of Arizona, really, thanks to Martha McSally, the state now, for the first time in decades, has no Republican senators. And, you you know, you, I, you have to kind of honestly make a joke here. Like, when they first nominate or when they first appointed McSally to take that spare Senate seat right after she'd lost to cinema. I went on and tweeted and said, this is what happens when you give every kid a participation trophy. Because as much as conservatives complain about participation trophies, I don't see what else you would call it when a Senate candidate has just lost an election and you say, oh, it's okay, you can just have that spare Senate seat. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like Confederate monuments and flags, like those are sort of great examples of participation trophies that conservatives like. But again, it's very possible Bernie Sanders would have lost. Uh, we, we don't know. I just don't think it's a given that he would have lost. Now, I'd also like here to uh, discuss a little bit about the sort of the specifics of the presidential election results in Maine, because Maine, it's interesting not only because it splits its electoral votes, one of only two states to do so, but also because a Trump win in Maine, as I said earlier, would have been a harbinger for a Trump re-election, because again, Trump lost Maine last time. But I want to sort of compare the election results in Maine for Trump in 2016 versus in the year 2020. In the year 2016, Hillary Clinton won Maine by just under three percentage points. This was uh, quite different from the sort of landslide results that Barack Obama had enjoyed in the state during both of his presidential runs. And it also was close enough that it allowed Trump to get one electoral vote from one of Maine's districts, uh, something that neither John McCain or nor Mitt Romney have been able to do. But nonetheless, Hillary Clinton still won the state. And I thought that Hillary Clinton not doing better than she did was largely due to a libertarian candidate Gary Johnson running and getting 5% of the vote in Maine. New England has tended to be exceptionally sort of receptive to third parties. And I felt that if you sort of took Johnson off the table and just looked at the percentages that Clinton and uh, and Trump got, or the percentage that Trump got, then it really wasn't that different from how George W. Bush did in Maine in 2004 prior to the Obama landslides. So I did not think that there was much chance of uh, Trump winning this state in 2020. I think that one of the things that has to be understood about New England is that the sort of normal rules of, of what demographics favor what candidates don't fully apply in New England. In the northern part of the region, uh, basically uh, Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire, the states are very rural and the states are very white. In the cases of Maine and Vermont, the states are also very working class. But despite this, the states are also socially liberal, not very religious, and vote pretty reliably Democratic. One of the more surreal moments was in 2017 when Trump thought that the New England Patriots winning the Super Bowl was a victory for him, even though every New England state had gone for Clinton in 2016. So 
I did not see much danger in Trump winning the state of Maine. So you fast forward to election night 2020. Maine was called fairly early for Joe Biden. But while the state once again split its electoral votes, the sort of difference in numbers is very much worth looking at. So in 2020, Joe Biden defeated Trump by about nine percentage points in the state of Maine. So this is not quite where Barack Obama was, but it's much better than Clinton did. And it really sort of indicates, number one, Clinton winning the state fair, fairly narrowly was partly driven by Gary Johnson running, and also that the Clinton brand in Maine is simply not as popular now as the Obama brand is in that state. And you think, wait a minute, well, the state is, is largely white working class. That, that doesn't make sense. But if you look at the 2008 Democratic presidential caucus, Barack Obama beat Hillary Clinton by about 60-40. Uh, so that indicates that the Obama brand is more popular in Maine than the Clinton brand is. I felt that going into the election. I think that Biden doing about six percentage points better than Clinton did last time sort of bears that out. So now we come to what, in my opinion, is perhaps the uh, best part of the presidential election, which is the post-election loss meltdown that Donald Trump has had. So Donald Trump, as most of you know, has spent basically the last near two months at this point insisting that he got robbed, despite the slight problem of having no evidence to back up his claim. And so at this point, it's funny to me the extent to which Donald Trump is kind of mirroring the villainous breakdowns that various fictional antagonists in books and movies have had. And there are several that kind of come to mind here. Uh, one of the examples that kind of comes to mind is if anyone has seen the sort of underrated Disney film from the 1980s called Great Ma The Great Mouse Detective, there's a character, uh, Professor Radigan, who is voiced by Vincent Price, uh, who would have certainly hated Trump in real life. Vincent Price was an outspoken liberal civil rights supporter, uh, one of the actually one of the very few celebrities who has been rumored to have been LGBT, where one of his family members has come out and said, oh, yeah, I'm almost certain he was bi. That almost never happens. Usually when somebody is rumored to be LGBT and they're deceased, the family member family members don't come out and try to confirm it. But Vincent Price voices the character of Radigan. He's uh, really shows why he's my favorite sort of old timey deceased actor. But Radigan, for most of the movie, kind of just revels in what a jerk he is. He's a megalomaniac. He flips out if somebody actually says he's a rat and not a mouse, which really mirrors how Trump reacts if you say he's not a billionaire. And he's obsessed on basically becoming a dictator. Now, at the, sort of the end of the movie, he's becoming increasingly unhinged, and he basically falls to his death after insisting that he won. That, while I certainly don't wish death on Trump, the sort of just going, kind of crashing and burning while you're insisting that you really won all along really does have a lot of parallels with Donald Trump. Now, another example that I can think of is the uh, character of Scar from The Lion King. Now, I'm thinking more 2019 version where Scar acts more sort of flat out crazy in certain scenes. And there is a particular scene in the 2019 remake that I really feel like reminds me of Biden and Trump. Destiny. 
Now, the main difference, of course, in that scene is that Donald Trump could not go 20 seconds in a fight with anyone, including Joe Biden. I imagine that probably the average five-year-old could kick Donald Trump's butt in a fight. And one, of course, but we're literally one one other sort of uh, similarity between Scar and Trump that I didn't think of when I originally sort of made that little clip is that Trump has now literally entered the Scar betraying the hyenas phase of his villainous breakdown by insisting that Brian Kemp, the Georgia governor, and Brad Raffsenberger, the Georgia Secretary of State, are both in on a conspiracy to defraud him of the election despite having vocally and strongly supported him this entire time. But I gotta say, you know, at least when Scar betrayed the hyenas, they actually ate him. In the case of Raffsenberger and especially Kemp, they're basically still sucking up to him. You know, Kemp has got this routine. He's acting like this kid who just got booted from the popular group and saying, you know, please, please take me back. Let me sit at the cool kids table again. You know, at least the hyenas sort of showed a little bit of backbone when their boss stabbed them in the back. And now the third sort of uh, villainous breakdown that Trump really reminds me of is the character of Voldemort from the Harry Potter series. Now, I want to offer a disclaimer here. The uh, Harry Potter novels are my favorite novels. The movies are nowhere near my favorite movies because most of them aren't very good. I, of course, absolutely condemn and deplore the author J.K. Rowling's transphobia. I suspect that my Twitter bio bragging about being uh, blocked by trans-exclusionary radical feminists probably indicates that I do not share J.K. Rowling's views on trans rights at all, but I wanted to sort of get that out there and just make it clear there was no ambiguity there. Um, I, I respect uh, J.K. Rowling's views on trans rights as much as I respect Tulsi Gabbard's views on trans rights, which is to say, not at all. But I still love the Harry Potter books. And one of the things about Trump's, uh, about Trump's villainous breakdown that reminds me of Voldemort's is that there's a scene that it'll... What I'm describing here is going to make sense if you've read the books. If you haven't read the books, I strongly encourage you to uh, go read them, if nothing else to sort of make sense of this part of the podcast. But there's a part of the last Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in the climax, where Voldemort's MacGuffin, the uh, Elder Wand, which is the most powerful wand in the wizarding world, has switched its allegiance to Harry after never actually having been under Voldemort's control. This makes, again, a lot more sense in context. But Harry is now effectively in possession of the Elder Wand, where in uh, Voldemort is holding it, but Harry is sort of the true master of the wand, and he's trying to explain to Voldemort, look, dude, if you try to kill me with this wand, it's going to rebound on you, and whatever curse you try on me is just going to kill you. And also at this point, again, it makes sense in context, Harry has destroyed all of Voldemort's horcruxes that are keeping him from being killed, keeping Voldemort from being killed, and has performed sort of a sacrifice that has magically created a protective barrier for all of Harry's friends and allies, which means that Voldemort and company can't really do anything to them. So at this point, and this is one of the reasons why it's such a sort of unusual but interesting climax, is that we basically know that Voldemort's goose is cooked at this point. And the enjoyment of the scene is not from the suspense so much as from sort of watching what you know is about to happen actually happen and sort of watching the villain sort of seal their fate. And so despite the fact that Harry is warning Voldemort, look, you're, you're done, you're beaten, you're going to make things worse on yourself if you try to keep fighting, Voldemort is still insisting that he's got everything under control. He's still insisting that the wand is in his possession, that he can control it, just like Trump is insisting that he's still going to win the presidential election. And of course, Voldemort 
tries to use... Oh, I should probably clarify here if, uh, if you don't want spoilers. Uh, skip over this part. But Voldemort tries to cast a killing spell with the wand. It rebounds on him, and he's dead, just like Trump's political career at this point is probably dead. And the, the reason to sort of be more specific about this, the reason that I see so much parallel with Trump is that in both cases, you have somebody who is metaphorically in Trump's case and pretty much literally in Voldemort's case, dead to rights. It's guaranteed they're going to lose. And they can at least make things a little bit easier on themselves if they go ahead and just know when to fold them and end it now. But both guys, based on sort of this misplaced sense of entitlement and bigotry, both are sort of insisting that they can still win and end up, as the warnings of Harry and as the warnings of Democrats predicted, end up making things even worse on themselves than they would have been had they just sort of known when to fold them. Now, speaking of stories, if this were a fictional story, if this were a movie, if this were a television miniseries, if this were a novel, I can tell you exactly how the sort of Biden-Trump feud would end. So the main, the main sort of problem that we have with Trump right now constitutionally, Trump does not have to concede the presidential election to lose the presidential election. He will no longer be president after Inauguration Day, whether he admits it or not. The main problem that we find ourselves faced with is that Donald Trump still has the football, the euphemism for the U.S. nuclear codes. And there's always that sort of fear in the back of my head that once he realizes that there's no way this election is going to get overturned, he's basically going to say, I'll nuke everything if you don't overturn the election. That's really the main reason that we can't just build a wall around the White House, move all the Secret Service agents and staff and stuff out, and just let Biden run things from somewhere in Delaware. The, the, the Trump having the football is the main sort of barrier to that. So if this were a novel, if this were a miniseries, if this were a movie, what would happen is that Trump would come out and Trump would basically, like he'd come out of the White House and he'd have the football and he would say, you either make me the president, everyone bow down and genuflect me, and everyone stand for the national anthem from now on, or I am going to launch the nuclear codes and blow us all to kingdom come. And then just when everyone's thinking, okay, what are we going to do? Then Barack Obama would pull up in a car, and he'd say, actually, what you're holding is not the football. He'd pull out a briefcase, and he'd say, this is the football. I went ahead and just took it with me when I left the White House, and I left you with just a regular briefcase, because I knew you were going to pull something like this. And then as Trump is sort of realizing that he's really in trouble now because he's looking at not only losing his presidency, but also going to prison, he tries to sort of swing the just regular briefcase that Obama gave him at Biden's head. Biden, because he is faster than a turtle, moves sort of out of the way, kicks Trump in the stomach, headbutts him, and then sort of ends the fight because Trump can't fight his way out of a paper bag. And then Obama promptly hands over the briefcase to Biden, and then Biden pardons Obama for uh, basically stealing the briefcase from the White House. Although, honestly, let's face it, there is not a jury in the world that would convict Barack Obama if he did do what I've just described. This whole scenario isn't going to play out like that. It would be hilarious and awesome if it did, but it's not. But if even if Obama had done that, you would have to get just a jury of 12 just full-on MAGA people. It wouldn't even necessarily... Uh, get a conviction if you had 12 Trump voters who had just a halfway functioning brain, because even people who might be willing to vote for Trump, I think have to know on some level that he's incredibly dangerous with nuclear codes. So I, I don't think there's a jury in the world that would convict Obama, but I'm sure if he did that, Biden would pardon him anyway. 
And so that sort of brings us to the end of this podcast. In the next podcast, which will be recorded after the Georgia Senate results are known, I'll be sort of breaking down the House and the Senate results and talking about how everyone sort of has a narrative that sort of fits their worldview about what went right or, as the case may be, wrong with the down-ballot races and how the truth is somewhere in the middle. So until I talk to you again, peace out. If you haven't read Harry Potter, go ahead and do it. And see you next time.